Hi, and welcome back to Talk Talk. I'm Emily Osam. Today we delve into the world of statistics and unpack how it can be a tool that can both reveal and conceal. Here with me today are Miss Zira Beg, statistics and mathematics teacher, Mr. Martin Brown, mathematics teacher, and Miss Virginia Voigt, psychology teacher. Some questions that we'll discuss include, what is statistics? Why is it such a powerful tool? And how might it be a tool for revealing or concealing in different areas of knowledge? I asked them to share with me some examples of statistical methods and also some different examples of real-life statistics that reveal or concealed in their disciplines. Finally, we discuss why it matters and why this is an important issue that statistics might conceal as much as they reveal. began by sitting down first with the math teachers to understand more about the nature of statistics as a tool. Here's that conversation. So one of the first questions I had was just sort of simply, what is statistics as a tool? Like, what are some of the things that we need to know about what statistics is and does? So basically, in the most simplistic terms or layman language, I would say statistics is essentially the study of data, right? It's the whole process of collecting data, of organizing it, interpreting it, and then finally presenting it to the audience. So that's the gist of what statistics is as a subject. But if you want to get into the technicalities of it, since I'm a math teacher, yeah. so it, you can like divide it into two separate branches, right? There's descriptive statistics, and then there is inferential statistics. Mm. So descriptive statistics is basically just um, identifying the main features or characteristics of a data set. Mm. So if you, for example, let's talk about the scores of the students in a particular class for an assessment. So you would talk about what the average score was or what was the minimum score, what was the highest score, where was the data mostly lying between, which values. So that's mm. just the main features of the data set. Mm. Whereas inferential statistics would be taking the data from this particular sample and then generating realizing over a population. Mm. So that's where the uncertainty in the data mm. comes in and reporting that data. Okay, so I could see descriptive being more like objective perhaps. Yes. Just describing what are what is the data. Yes. Maybe right. making some sense of it about what we actually know. Yeah. Whereas interpretive is more predictive in that nature, right? Correct. Correct. Okay, so perhaps that's the area of more danger in terms of revealing or concealing what Maybe, we may or may not although know. even with descriptive yeah. statistics, you've got to be a little bit careful if you to know about the context. Okay. So if you don't know the context of which um, the assessment or the test or the, the data is in, um, then it, it can still be difficult for the person who's viewing that oh. data to understand what it actually means. I see. Um, so having the raw scores, which then turn into a, a mean average or a, a standard deviation to see how it's spread may not still give meaning unless you've got some context okay. uh, with that statistical information as well. And it's all about how okay. you even present that descriptive statistics, right? So you could present it in a way that you want your audience to take a particular interpretation out of it. Yeah. So it could be suggestive as well. So there could be aspects of misleading information in either of the two branches. I see. Okay. So from what I understand about statistics, it's just really a tool for understanding data and making sense, whether it's like describing what is or what could be, that predictive nature, which does make it a really powerful tool. Why is it such a powerful tool? I think one of the main reasons is because it's used in perhaps every field, mm -hmm. whether you call like political campaigns or financial markets or education or even uh, medical launches, like in the case nowadays of, of the COVID-19 vaccination yeah. and all the statistics that are running around it. I mean, the whole pandemic, all the strategies that different countries are taking in order to curb it, it's, it's all based on the statistical analysis of the data that they've gathered. Mm. So I, I think there's barely any field where we don't use No, it's massive. Statistics. It's massive. Yeah. And, mm. and, and 
because of that, there's, there's also a lot of ethics involved in statistics as well. Because if you look at things like the COVID-19 vaccination and, and how confident are we in that uh, new vaccination, wherever it may come from, we're also having to think about our confidence levels and, and have they been taken ethically and is the information done in a, in a way which um, makes us feel confident, but also so that there isn't any bad things going on towards, say, who gets the contract for which vaccine or mm-hmm. for which company. There's a lot of problems involved with ethics, with statistics. So mm-hmm. good statisticians are approaching problems in a way which is not bringing in bias, which is not mm-hmm. um, looking at it from a subjective point of view, but actually being very objective with with data and information. Mm-hmm. It seems like in statistics, um, a statistician would have to be able to think from a lot of different perspectives in order to think about what the variables that, that are worth thinking about or asking questions about and collecting data points about. Like if you're collecting data about a certain age or the gender or the location or so on, some of those things might be relevant and others not so relevant. Obviously, the irrelevant data isn't going to hurt but it's where you're leaving out relevant data and you may not necessarily know. I think that could be quite... Um... Yeah, sometimes it may be you're collecting data and you don't actually have a, a good sample size or you don't have a good understanding of is that actually the full data. Uh, the other thing is if you take data from people, there's no guarantee that they're telling you the truth. So how you sort the data out in terms of trying to understand what the data means in, in a very truthful way could be difficult. Mm. Taking from there, like the sample size is, is something that's really important mm-hmm. when you're gathering data, right? Like you could say 90% of this group says yes to a particular thing, but that could just be 90 out of 100 group as compared to 900 out of 1,000. Yeah. The percentage would just tell you 90%, but we don't know what exactly the sample size was. So that's really important in knowing as well. Right? Yeah, that can Sometimes. be really misleading, yes. I think. Mm-hmm. We hear lots of... Journalists love to do that with statistics yeah. is just take a huge number and blow it out of proportion and you're thinking, actually, well, how many people were you, were yeah. you talking about? What was yeah. the sample size? Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So that's something that re- that's really important. I guess that leads us to the, the main question, which is the title that we're exploring is about how statistics conceal as much as they reveal. So this idea that statistics conceal and reveal. So there's something essential that they're doing in order revealing patterns perhaps in complex data, and then also concealing. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's intentional, but it could just be that it's not letting us see another trend because we're looking at one thing rather than that other. So how do you see that? How do you see statistics as a tool that could be used both reveal and conceal? Well, uh, it could be concealed in various ways and very easily, especially if you're targeting layman audience. Some graphs can be very misleading. Just the fact that you can manipulate the calibration of graphs and the scaling is not consistent. Mm. Um, you could perhaps highlight or exaggerate a trend of increase or decrease mm. um, by just making sure that your scaling is inconsistent. I see. Or just not starting from a baseline zero. And these things that could go missing and people could not catch or notice it, mm. that's very easily you could mislead the information by just mm. making sure your visuals are not accurate. Mm. So that's one way. I think another way is that with a lot of statistics, what we might think as lay people might not actually be the obvious uh, understanding. So we might be thinking, okay, the statistics is going to give me this result. And when the statistics gives a different result, we might be quite perplexed about that. And then that also brings some doubt into whether statistics is a problem or whether the result is actually true or not. Mm. So I think our own understanding of what the problem might be or what the what the outcome might already be can can also put a layer of of concealment on top mm. of that because we feel that this should be an obvious answer, yet the statistics give us a, a different result. Sometimes something we think is intuitively this way, but the statistics will actually tell us oh, that it's not. I see. Yeah, it will tell us something quite different. Mm. Uh, and it's something which is also true in probability. We might, we might be told, oh, what's the probability? This happens. And we think it's an answer which is obvious, but actually the, the real answer is not. Mm. And also simply like just, just how you draft your questions for surveys, the way the questions are worded can perhaps lead the respondent to answer in a certain way. Mm. For example, you could frame the question 
or a government survey form where you say that, do you think your money should be taxed um, so that people who are not working can benefit from it? That clearly shows a negative connotation towards taxation. Mm. And it's leading the respondent to answer in a way which shows no. Um, A more objective way of framing the question could be just what are your thoughts towards government employment benefit programs. People who design the survey can perhaps word questions in a way Mm. that they get the answers that they're looking for, Mm. which could also lead to misleading information and conceal important facts, so to speak. I mean, this just, that kind of comes down to the ethics of designing an appropriate kind of survey. Yeah. Which um, may or may not have anything to do with the statistics, but just at the base level of data collection. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's true across all sciences and all yeah. use of data, not just statistics. And, mm. and we also, we talked about sampling earlier. Um, mm. And there's a lot of theory into different types of sampling techniques. Uh, so again, you could design a great questionnaire with some really, really super questions, mm. but then the, the sampling process might bias your outcome as well. So that could also be used as a way to conceal. Yeah. But it also could be a way of revealing something you want to reveal. I see. Um, so if you're looking at a sample, a questionnaire based on maybe something like McDonald's, mm-hmm. you, you might find that your, your biggest audience for that is going to be, say, age 15 to 30. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you then sample an older group of people that may not give you mm, uh, the yeah. kind of data you would expect uh, from a younger group of people. I see. So how you sample and what you choose as your sample size and also from gender point of view as well mm-hmm. uh, may make a difference on your final yeah. outcome. I saw all those variables it can be quite complex. One of the things that occurred to me was that idea that correlation is not always causation, that we can sometimes think because the data seems to be trending this particular way that the variables we've selected have represented and this are the cause of the result that we're finding. I, I wondered your thoughts on that idea, like causation and correlation in, in, in statistics. Yeah, so uh, I think statistics mainly can tell you how closely related two variables are. So mm. we can talk about correlation, but the work of statistics is not to tell you whether there is causation between the two variables oh, or not. I see. So For that, you need to take external sources of information and a lot of more research, perhaps into social studies and social Mm -hmm. sciences. So statistics is just a mathematical tool that can inform you about correlation, Mm -hmm. but causation requires a lot more studies into various other fields. Simple example that we've come across in statistics classroom is, you know, you might have data which shows that in summers people eat a lot of ice cream Mm -hmm. and perhaps shark attacks are a lot as well. Right. <laughs> but that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, shark attacks are caused because of increase in ice cream sales, yes. so to speak. There could be a third factor, which is weather conditions, mm-hmm. right? It's because it's summers, it's hot. Um, so although you could statistically prove to have a very strong correlation between these two, but that doesn't necessarily mean that one causes the other. And you need additional information to support that. Yeah. Yeah. The wider, wider picture may come from, from much more information. So yeah. It's, yeah. it's important to not be led down one particular route and neglect more information which is available. Yeah. So drawing a conclusion from ice cream and shark attacks being a causation, that would be like an improper use, perhaps, of yes. the tool of statistics. True. Just not knowing how to wield the tool. Yeah. <laughs> Just, okay. <laughs> but I think that is somewhat like the danger of it is that perhaps... If everyone's not educated at the level of a statistician, then there is that danger of misinterpretation of data where we see, where we see numbers presented to us in a particular way. Correct, correct. And, and just the most recent one, right? I was just reading up an article on the COVID-19 vaccination mm-hmm. and the one that's launched by Pfizer and BioNTech. And they're saying that their vaccination has a 95% effective um, efficacy rate. Mm-hmm. And for a layman, I mean, that would be like for every 100 people who get vaccinated, 95 of them are definitely protected. Yeah. But it's not what it means. There's a whole mathematical process that's gone into it. Mm. And there are like lots of details about how many people volunteered. And out of those volunteered, like around 44,000 people who volunteered for this particular vaccination experimentation. Out of those, 170 were the ones who had symptoms and 
they also got positive test results for COVID-19. And out of those 170, 162 were from the placebo group, which got an injection which had um, no medication in it. So Mm. it was a blindfold. And eight of them were from the vaccinated group. So 162 out of those 170 gives you a 95% efficacy rate. Yeah, that's not how I would have gotten to that number. Yeah, you know, there's a whole math involved. Wow. So you haven't even gone in to test those people who did not show any results, but could be COVID-19 positive. Oh, goodness. So... So, and it's not misleading information because that's how medication drugs are launched based on this efficacy rate mathematics. But to a layman, it might just seem completely different, Mm. right? So um, Yeah, it seems like a much more trustworthy number than what you're saying, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we want to hear 95% rather than 85%, don't we? Yeah. So so they Well, I'd rather hear 100% or 99.9% in this case, right? Wow. <laughs> that just blows my mind. I think about all the numbers that you hear and what they, how do they actually reach that and what are we to make of that? Is that giving us false hope then in the vaccine? Not really false hopes. There's just a particular way to, mm. to do the math about it. Okay. But it's also about other factors that have to be considered, right? Mm. What about the other people who did not show symptoms but could be asymptomatic? Mm-hmm. Um, we cannot completely ignore the fact that those members were also part of the experimental group. Mm. Um, and then perhaps things like all these people were generally healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know if they had any underlying yeah. issues yeah. that could be in the actual real population. I think one of, the, one of the things which came out in the first week of those vaccinations going in the UK was that the advice was then given not to give this vaccination to people who were uh, had a lot of allergies. Correct. Um, yeah. And again, those people may not have been a part of the sampling before because it may not have occurred to people or it may not have been the type of people they wanted in a healthy sample. Mm -hmm. You said it was about 40,000? 44,000 volunteers, But those volunteers may not have been the type of volunteers who would be highly allergic to things. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in the first week that that came through quite quickly that uh, certain groups of people should be cautious of of taking the the vaccine, and that only comes from real-life usage of of the vaccine afterwards. So it really strikes me that talking about the title initially was about, like, how it might be misleading or um, this, like, intentional or perhaps even malicious concealing of data. But this just strikes me more as perhaps unintentional, and it's just by default in the nature of statistics, that it can't capture all the details. It's not meant to capture the details of the individual's So it's great at revealing ideas for a whole group, but perhaps it's quite concealing towards the needs of individuals, say, in this COVID study. Yeah. And in in those cases, only only after a longer time or a longer period of Mm. of study do more statistics come up, which Mm. then can be giving you a good understanding of what's what's actually going on. Yeah. Well, and at that point, do we even need it anymore? Because we mm. don't need to be predictive. We're now being descriptive. Yeah. Yes. But we still have to appreciate the fact that it is still a very powerful tool, right? You can't have the whole world vaccinated. And then see what happens. And then see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> that could be problematic. Yeah. So it, it does yeah. give you a, a reasonable judgment as to what could happen mm. in reality mm. and and we need such things because it's just impractical to have a census and you do need experimentation on a sample yeah so it, it just depends on how you use your judgment to then make use of this mathematical aspect yeah so i was thinking about like mean median and mode and how those can be so deceiving depending on what it is we're asking and they're probably the most yeah. used it's the starting point isn't it yeah how how misleading can these three things be? Or I guess, like, what do they conceal or reveal? Well, outliers can make a huge mm. difference. Yeah, um, it's outliers these, are the yeah, big issue. Yeah, that's the main thing. It can mm. skew your data yeah. um, uh, to, like, one outlier, which could be an accidental measurement or truly an outlier, mm. can skew your data towards either end and not give the exact meaningful result. That reminds me, the U.S. Air Force designed their cockpits based off of the statistics of the average heights of pilots. Basically, they took the, the average size of pilots and they designed the cockpit to fit the mm-hmm. average size pilot. But what happened was it fit no one because either the pilots, pilots were shorter or taller. Most were not the average. Uh, yeah. 
the average just takes that middle and actually no one's really ever the average. And so what they did to design a better cockpit was actually look at the outliers as we need to design this to fit the tallest and the shortest. Yeah. Mm. And the middle people are like sort of captured between. in between. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's interesting that you talk about, we often talk about looking at the mean, median, or mode, and we're looking at that central tendency for mm. the data. We had a very interesting speaker come into the school, for, I think it was last year, and he came in talking about the use of extreme statistics. So those once-in-a-century um, occasions yeah. and how often they occur. And you would think it was once-in-a-century, but they're becoming more and more common. Mm. So his, his actual research is all about throwing away the middle data mm-hmm. and then looking at data of when do the extreme floods happen or mm-hmm. when do the extreme storms happen how often are they what's the frequency of them mm-hmm. so that's that's actually a completely different use of statistics to look at data mm-hmm. against what you would normally think is normal mm-hmm. and what is is kind of average so you don't always remove the outliers this when was you a do study of the outliers then sometimes yeah. you have to take them into consideration as well mm-hmm. yeah yeah, it gets really complicated yeah. to do that, though. It's a lot easier to just find that sort of trend yeah. and draw conclusions, mm. which is what we really want to do. We want to find patterns and make sense of the world, and that's why statistics is such a powerful tool. It's not so easy if we have to think about yeah. those things that mm. sit outside of the trend. But then those things which sit outside the trend may actually be really more important than we think. Exactly, mm. yeah. yeah. Interesting. So by removing outliers, sometimes that could be the worst mm. thing we mm. could do. Mm. That will very easily conceal something maybe very important. Mm. Going back to the mean, median, and mode, so we've talked a lot about the mean, the average. Perhaps sometimes a useful tool, but oftentimes it's not very descriptive for what's actually happening in the real world. Like, no one has actually 2.5 children, right? That's mm. not mm-hmm. a real, not a number of children you can actually have. But then there's median and mode. Um, and I had read one interesting about Amazon reviews, for example, using bimodal forms of um, data analysis. So there's 20 reviews for five out of five stars, Mm. 20 reviews for zero out of five stars or one out of five stars. The average there would be like two and a half stars. Like it's a Mm. okay book. Yeah, but but it's not, is it? It's It's, not. It's either an amazing book. It's either you love it or hate it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that, um, that would talk about the kind of people who like that book and the kind of people who don't like that book. Right. So again, other factors taken into consideration Mm. than just the fact of the statistical value of 2.5. Yeah. Do you guys know about Simpson's paradox? Can you explain that to me? It's basically a case where if you take the data collectively Mm -hmm. rather than its subcategories, Mm -hmm. then it tells you a completely different kind of information as compared to when you break that data out into subgroups. Yeah. And it tells you a completely different... It reminds me of, like, U.S. elections, that kind of thing. Like, if you look at, like, a state mm. collectively, mm. it says one thing. Versus if you look at the individual counties, they say all another except yeah. for one very significant place, yeah. which says the thing that you're taking for the whole. Yeah. I saw a statistical... It should be impossible, but it was the way of winning the uh, electoral college vote for the U.S. election. Somebody had actually gone through and looked at 11 states and in particular 11 counties which would win each of those states Mm -hmm. to show that you could win the presidency over just 11 small Mm -hmm. metropolitan areas yeah you know again it's it's how statistics can be used in such ways to show things like that it's Mm -hmm. quite interesting yeah we've talked about what is statistics we've talked about why it's such a powerful tool for better or for worse perhaps instances where it could be misused, misconstrued. And we talked about how it can be used to reveal and conceal. Why does it matter? Statistics is used, like you said, for everything, for things like investing, policy making, medicine, marketing, um, even things like Netflix, like mm-hmm. predicting the right kind of film that you might want to watch, weather, like what we might wear, so on. So It gives us confidence. That's what statistics does. It yeah. gives us confidence in what we're doing is the is either the right thing to do with a particular situation or it gives us confidence that we're investing in the right place or we're using the right vaccine or we're mm. you know, voting for the right people. And it gives a company confidence that their marketing or their strategy or their sales strategy is the correct one to use to, to make money and to give people what they want mm. or give people what they don't want but what they want to sell mm. yeah i think so like in summary it just confidence. brings credibility to your claim mm. right so that's why these 
advertising companies or manufacturing companies use statistics to just add that credibility to their mm. claim. Let's say a toothpaste company would say, well, you know, 90% of the dentists recommend my brand. Mm-hmm. Um, so that just, you know, just stands out and, and just brings that mm. sense of credibility to their brand and yeah. their claim. So that, that would be one big reason why it's so useful uh, to some organizations. But I think, yeah, one important aspect of it is then how as as a consumer or on the other end how do you know if this claim is credible or mm. how do you know if this piece of information that's coming from statistics is something that you can rely on yeah that's an interesting aspect of it and i think like an important thing is to consider is where is that information coming from mm. you know which which party who did that research who was who sponsored for that mm. research? Were the were the nine out of ten dentists, for example, just yeah. all your good friends yeah. that are dentists? Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, where where is that research coming from? Mm. Is it by the main company itself who mm-hmm. conducted that research, or yeah. is it like a third party, um, neutral company? Yeah, is it like a university cohort group which is going to be completely neutral? Yeah, things like these, or maybe if you can access the primary data itself, maybe the survey or the questionnaire, and go through that. You know, yeah. obviously that's a lot of work, but just to tie in that sources and to question the credibility of the research yeah. and the data itself. So the source itself could be what's actually concealed yeah. in sharing the, the yeah. statistics. And that's something that we as consumers or just consumers of knowledge in general need to be inquisitive yeah. about. Where is yeah. it coming from? Ask the these kinds of like questions. The, these surveys and these research, they, they call in for a lot of money, for a lot of investment. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not something that can happen overnight or something that's easy to roll out. Yeah. And, and the sponsoring company who's investing all that money tends to give that intimidating kind of role to have the results in, in favor of them, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, that is also an important factor that who, was this research conducted by a neutral party mm-hmm. or was it conducted by the sponsoring company? Mm-hmm. Where is it coming from? Yeah. yeah. And we get full circle right back to ethics again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah definitely. So that concealing, perhaps, the true nature of the study itself, the investors or the people that have a stake in the outcome. If statistic is used well, it can be quite revealing towards these different kinds of trends and um, help us to make meaning out of, yes. true. Out of yes, data. For sure. Awesome, you guys. Thank you so much for your time. Thank Great. you. Thank you. Thank you. I sat down with a psychology teacher, Ms. Voigt, just to find out a little bit more about how this tool could be applied. So I just recently finished a conversation with Mr. Brown and Ms. Baig discussing what is statistics and, and why it is such a powerful tool. We discussed a lot of the different methodologies within mm-hmm. statistics and how that might be used as a tool either to reveal a certain kind of information or to conceal whether it was intentionally or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really excited to have you to talk with me today just about that idea within psychology. So I think that to start off talking about statistics in psychology, you have to think about psychology as being a pre-science. And because it's a, the definition of a pre-science is it is a discipline where there is no singular paradigm, all right? Mm. So we're not like the natural sciences where we can study any particular aspect of human behavior or cognition using a singular paradigm. Mm. So we're multi-perspective. So we call the pre-science. I think psychology is passionate about wanting to be a science, and it's not a pseudoscience. I take big exception to that. But it's a pre-science because it doesn't have the singular paradigm that it comes from. Mm. So that relates to some of the, the, the statistical analysis because certain of the paradigms in psychology will rely on quantitative statistical knowledge as being true knowledge. Mm. So, for instance, biological psychology will rely on statistical conclusions coming out of experimental research with the idea that human behavior is based in biology. So Mm. the cause would be a biological cause, 
different hormone levels, brain injury, with a resulting change in behavior. So mm. in biological psychology, you would get statistical analysis of numerical data. Mm. But of course, because we're describing people, there are so many complexities and layers. Any statistical conclusion of that nature could be really um, concealing all kinds of qualitative details. Mm, yeah. All right. Um, and that's maybe a bit of a simplistic statement. But if, for instance, in social cultural psychology, which is another paradigm, which says people are products of their social and cultural backgrounds, and that's what drives behavior. If you did only statistical analyses, mm. you would be missing a whole lot. You yeah. could be concealing. So if you take a classic um, social psychology experiment, the Milgram experiment or the Stanford prison experiment, which some students might have come across, I think, because they're pretty classic traditional ones, and if you did those with only numerical quantitative data, and, and there was some, you would miss all the observational stuff. So it would be really reductionist. The, mm. the conclusions would be super reductionist yeah. and lacking in a holistic picture of whatever is studied. So in a sense, not, not concealing in an overt or intentional way, but in this case, it would just be like only looking at a minutia of the data or only looking at one part of the story and not getting the full picture. Yes. I see. Yeah. And I, I think you... So if I look back at the statement, not so much concealing statistics as not accounting for, mm. not accounting for other variables which might be um, fundamental to explaining a particular behavior or cognitive process. Where we do rely on statistics is that over time, as we've had greater access to more technology, especially in neuroscience, mm. we do rely on, on experimentation a little bit more, certainly in cognitive psychology as well. So if I'm, for instance, studying memory mm. and I do a memory test and I have, my independent variable is the effect of heat on memory and I test students in a temperature of 20 degrees centigrade and 15 degrees centigrade. And there is a numerical difference in the number of words they recall. Yeah. What I then need to do is to test whether that difference is of significance. So I can be certain that it was my IV that caused the difference. And there we really rely on statistical tests. And Oh, uh, we tested a 95% level of significance. So once we've done the inferential statistic, we can say if the research hypothesis is accepted, we can say that we are 95% sure mm. that the difference was due to my manipulation of an independent variable and not to chance factors. Yeah, and that's really strengthened the validity of some of the knowledge we do have in psychology. Mm. So certainly there's the that, that value in statistics. But then maybe somebody, you know, to, to continue that example, maybe somebody on that day had an argument with somebody in the morning. Sure. And that's why they didn't remember the words, and it wasn't. So yeah. it's pretty difficult. And, you know, I think what we rely on more in psychology is descriptive statistics. Yeah. So where we can describe... A behavior using numericals. Yeah. So I could do an observational study. I could, you know, be wanting to draw conclusions about aggression by going to the zoo and watching uh, male primates with a thesis that male primates are more dominant than mm. female. And I would have an inventory where I have indicators of aggression, pushing somebody, stealing, mm. not somebody some primate, <laughs> but somebody's banana or something. <laughs> sure. And I'm going to check it off, and I can count how many times I saw. Yeah. And then I can use descriptive statistics to describe data. Yeah, just to say, okay, this the males stole so many in this circumstance, in pushed this, period this many of time. in this certain amount of time, yeah. But I, Where, I, And the females did X, Y, Z. Yeah. So that descriptive statistics you're saying is a more useful tool, perhaps, in, um, in psychology. psychology. I think 
in psychology, where statistics can conceal stuff is your selection of a particular test yeah. is crucial. So it could be if you're using the wrong test for the nature of the study you're doing, yeah. you could really conceal certain information or you could use a particular type of statistical test in order to confirm your hypothesis because you know it's going to so you get that researcher bias the confirmation bias you look for the data that you want yeah in order to test your you find the patterns the patterns in order to support your hypothesis sure so actually i now that you're saying it that way i'm thinking about the conceal and reveal i initially thought that that concealing would be a bad thing revealing would be a good thing kind of you know, illuminating versus mm-hmm. like hiding. Um, but now that you're saying it that way, I think actually both could be good or bad or not necessarily value-laden. Concealing could just simply be that it's not showing us kind of information that we need mm-hmm. in order to make sense and vice versa. Revealing could really just be revealing what we're aiming to reveal mm-hmm. and only that. Mm-hmm. So it, it could just be neither good or bad to conceal or reveal. I loved what you were saying about how psychology is a pre-science and thus there's no paradigm. So it's in a sense, um, statistics has a lot of work to do if it's to be useful within the field of psychology in order to build those paradigms, perhaps. Seeing as statistics is a tool that we're wanting to use in order to make sense of a huge amount of data, assuming we have that Mm. data. Um, yeah, I don't think it's so much a question of we've got no paradigm, we've got no singular multiple one, we've paradigms. got, yes, we've got varied ones. Sure. I'm not sure that we'd ever get one singular one. Yeah. I was talking to students yesterday, I think, about do you think we would ever be able to build a human robot which could process information like the brain? And there was quite a debate in the class about that, and some people felt you really could and some couldn't. Where I'm going with that is that I think the agreement was that in years to come, we might be able to develop a singular paradigm with greater technology. Mm. And, you know, I'm going off a little bit off track with the statistics there, but the more we can isolate variables and provides some predictive validity to our research, the stronger will be our understanding of human behavior. And that's where the stats comes in, because statistically, you're wanting to see how X causes Y and reflect that in a statistical conclusion. And that's something that we've still got a long way to go about in order to achieve that. So it's that how X causes Y... And in its very simple terms, then being able to form patterns, small, tiny patterns, which I guess if it was in a sense of creating an artificial intelligence, it'd be like millions of those little tiny mm. patterns that then add up. Yeah. And that really does come down to does X cause Y, whatever mm. it might be yeah. in, the, in the sense of behavior. And do the numbers. I mean, I think, again, the mathematicians would have said that the inferential statistics will be able to say how significant those findings are. Mm. I think that that's what, at least inferential statistics, that's what they reveal. Mm. But, you know, there is that saying, statistics lie, or you can lie with statistics. And that is highly valid in psychology, because if you, and I'm being a bit repetitive, but if you use the incorrect test or apply them incorrectly, you can conceal all kinds of things. That very saying comes from the fact that they can conceal stuff. Especially because numbers seem to have strength. Yeah. When it comes to the sciences especially, Mm -hmm. that's where it becomes like a harder science. It's where we have like some kind of numerical data that can back it up. It feels more factual. It does. And that's also one of the strengths of statistics and the dangers as well, is that it can conceal through its own the very nature of the it's sort of like the the lens like where you're where you're focusing that lens mm, mm. Um, of statistics if you're if you're focusing on what it is you want to prove or find or promote or so on mm. then it becomes um, a tool that's being misused mm, mm. it is a bit of like that paradox like you you have to know what you're seeking mm. in order to know what you might find 
Well, unless you, you know, into induction, and you look for the pattern first and then you test it out. Yeah. Well, in science, you strive for objectivity. But there's always a person analysing yeah. and interpreting that numerical at the yeah. end of the day. And that analysis is human. Yeah. And I think that very much in psychology, that's, that's the case. Even one of our greatest developments in being able to understand the way the brain and the mind works is the development of the fMRI scan. The scientist still interprets the scan. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And similarly with, the, with a statistical numer- numerical, you saying, well, what does this tell us? Mm-hmm. So there is that bias of interpretation. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, where some concealment mm-hmm. might occur. And that's actually an overlap, not only psychology. You would have that in every area. In ev- as long as you're using humans. And even then, if you're using computers, you still have a human behind the program that, to analyze sure. the data, whatever it might be. I mean, it's sort of the, I don't know, the, the problem with human sciences in general is that it's humans studying themselves. Right? It's the problem and also it's worth studying. It's worth finding out. It's worth asking the questions, even if it's going to have some error. Well, I think psychology is pretty good at describing and explaining human behavior, mm-hmm. but it's not very good at predicting and controlling. Yes. And that's where the statistical thing comes in, because the stronger our statistic, the stronger will be our predictive validity, and then we would know so much more, because I could predict that in these conditions, this would be the corresponding behavior. In other words, I could then treat it or control it or whatever I might need to do. And if I split it like that, I'd say, statistically, we're quite good at describing and explaining but not so good at predicting and controlling. And that maybe is a good thing. That sounds like perhaps a frightening thing to think about if, if we did get to the point where we could predict and control. That sounds well, yeah, it's, maybe it's, a realm of uh, psychology that we, maybe we don't want to go down in some... Well, I mean, where you do want to go down is where it comes down to mental illnesses, etc., sure. because you want to predict that if X person has these chemical levels and this genetic makeup, this will they happen. might be highly likely to have schizophrenia and you can then plan for that. Yeah. So going back, we were talking about descriptive and the use of those statistics within psychology. How many times customers go to McDonald's throughout mm-hmm. the day? Mm-hmm. What are the times? What are their ages? What do they buy? And that then describes a behavior, going, purchasing, Maybe it's not so much psychology as it is um, maybe economics. Perhaps it doesn't reveal, you know, the color of clothes they were wearing Mm, mm. or the mood they were in. Mm, mm. Uh, But it does reveal their preference towards a particular food and time. Yeah. So it just reveals the thing that we're looking at. Um, And that feels like quite safe and quite Mm. useful Mm. to a point. With inferential statistics, it feels much more dangerous to me to look at a set of data that is then going to be looking forward and trying to predict. Mm. Say your research question is, do students buy more pizza when it's cold than when it's hot? Mm -hmm. And you would look at their behavior on X day and on Y day, Mm -hmm. and you would compare the results. Mm. And then if there was a difference, Mm -hmm. you would say, oh yeah, on a cold day, students buy more pizza, and you could surmise that it was because when you're cold, you want more comfort food, blah, 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 blah. But then in order to see if the difference between a cold day and a hot day's Mm. eating habits are significant, you need to subject them to an inferential statistic. Mm. Because that test of significance is to see whether it's the weather that causes the change in eating patterns. Mm -hmm. And if it is statistically significant then you can say, well, weather causes people to buy more pizza. I mean, this is a a simplistic example. So the the descriptive statistic is there to collate and present raw data, a little bit like saying to somebody, here is a photograph. You're not asked to interpret the photograph. Mm -hmm. You're just asked to look at it. Yeah. But then the art teacher comes along and Mm. says, let's analyze (laughs) the photograph. Let's look at what color means, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And then... We, we analyze mm. the implications of the photograph. Mm. So what an inferential does, it gives you some kind of means of analyzing what that raw data tells you. Mm. Okay. 
I might go back to the statement, statistics conceal as much as they reveal. I would say that in psychology, statistics can conceal mm. as much as they reveal, depending on how they applied and it, depending on the extent of objectivity of those mm. analyzing it. Adding on to that, also depending on the intention yeah. of the people that are using it's not yes. really the statistics themselves that are yeah. concealing or revealing it's really yeah. more I mean, what we're doing with yes. it yeah the sure, human sure. involved so for instance one of the theories in social psychology is called social facilitation theory it's been replicated multiple times it was done by a guy called schmidt the most um, recent one so it's this idea that when you are conducting a task that is a pretty simple task you will do it better in the presence of others than when on your own. Oh, All right? Sure. But when it's a difficult task and you're not well-schooled in it, you will not be as effective. So it's called social facilitation theory. So an example of that study was that they got people in one condition to do a simple task like buttoning a shirt in the presence of others and then alone. So that was the IV, was alone or in the presence of others. Okay. IV is independent. The independent independent variable. variable. And then the dependent variable was the time taken to correctly button the shirt. Mm. They took the average time. So the descriptive statistic was the average mean time taken to do a simple task in X condition and Y condition. Okay. And then the difference in that time was subject to an inferential to say, okay, well, is that time difference really a significant one? Significant for us to say that it was the presence of others which caused the difference. Hmm. Now, if your statistic is 95% sure that it is, and that would be a a test like the unrelated T-test wouldn't be the chi-square test, the Wilcoxon rank test. I mean, these are tests that are developed by statisticians. Mm. Then you could say, yeah, we're pretty sure that in the presence of others doing a simple task, we know that human beings will perform better. Yeah. But it's interesting because I'm just picking up on better, and maybe it's the way that we're talking about it, but if it was me and I was looking at, like, does someone do it like a drawing better, I wouldn't use time as the variable. Okay, so you, and that's what we call is operationalizing variables. And funnily enough, that's where statistics could conceal at that very point. Because depending on how you operationalize, that's a significant point. You operationalize your independent and your dependent variable. Could be at that point you could be concealing. Yeah. So I'm going to measure time, but is time really an indicator of better. Yeah, sure. certainly there's like a way to button a shirt with finesse that would take mm. slower yeah. <laughs> amount yeah, of time sure, sure. than um, just getting it done quickly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's yeah. quite a interesting. Fascinating too, because that has a lot of implications for teaching and learning as well. I mean, Huge, yeah. certainly I would want to know as a teacher if, you know, giving students the time to work independently on complicated tasks is what they need. But it does seem just so logical. It is. But you know, another guy, Michaels did research on facilitation and he did it with pool players Mm. and they compared professional pool players with an audience and that's called the audience effect. And professional pool players increased their precision and their playing performance with an audience, whereas non-professionals didn't. Mm. That makes sense, though. It makes me think of, like, of singers and Absolutely. performers. They, yeah. they tend to be even better, like athletes. They, yeah. they perform at their best when, when they're professional and they're working you know, Yeah, and I mean, in pressure. sports psychology, there's lots of looking at the effect of spectators on mm. performance yeah. or the optimum level of performance, and those will be comparing different things. And since we're talking about statistics, is then, you see, you bring that down to a statistical analysis, and you might say, well, I don't know if you can do that with a yeah. pure number. Yeah, maybe it's not the right tool at the right, yeah. you know, for everything. Sure. And that's, you know, that whole hmm. issue of quantitative versus qualitative yeah. data. Um, it's a powerful tool when and it's I, wielded carefully, when it's used appropriately. But maybe you don't need that tool for all times. And, yeah. all and then I think, you know, thinking of theory of knowledge, if you think of personal and shared knowledge, mm. statistics are really useful for communicating shared knowledge. Mm. To a point, right? It's putting together lots of data, lots of information points, which could be quite varied. And so it says something perhaps about a group 
of people or yeah. events or instances, but it doesn't necessarily say anything about the individuals. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really where it can be very concealing. It's and like, that's where psychology is a pre-science and where we're kind of quite proud yeah. of it. It's like, yeah, it's hard, to, it's hard to draw these kinds of conclusions based off of how everyone is. Yeah. Because all you need is one person who's not that way. Yeah, and you falsified and you're, it. And you falsified it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and also it, it should be falsified mm-hmm. because if it, it's not applicable to everyone... Yeah. Well, in psychology, we say we never statistically prove anything. We only falsify. Yeah, which is why it becomes that sort of... um, circular kind of argument. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, thank you so much. Okay, we'll wrap up with that because we've got to go teach and get on with stuff. Yeah, alrighty. Super. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. It It was fun. It was fun to talk. Wow, what a great conversation I've just had with these three different people. It seems like with every kind of tool, it could be wielded for good or for bad. I remember when I was in college and I was studying statistics, it was one of the only math courses that I really found interesting because I found it has such application in my real life. And by studying statistics, I was able to see through some of the numbers that were being used. I found myself empowered by understanding how statistics could be used to conceal or reveal. Just looking back, we had a really good discussion about what statistics is, seeking to uncover simplicity inside complexity, making sense of our world. Generally speaking about statistics, they say that it's it's like a swimwear, where what it reveals is suggestive, uh-huh. but what it conceals is wider. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Tune in again next time for another episode of Talk Talk. 